preparing for this morning. Pastor Bill will continue in our series in the Gospel of Mark, preaching the uh, sermon entitled, Whose Voice Do You Hear? We mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. I'll be reading from the ESV. Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in on it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and he devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. Now when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Now other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. Now other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And Jesus, he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and those are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, they immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. But then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Good morning. Great to be with you this morning. Great to worship together again. If we've not yet met, I just met a new person. If we've not yet met, my name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline. We are continuing our Sunday morning teaching series in the book of Mark, and we are right in the middle of a section that's helping us understand who is a disciple? Who's a Christ follower? question first came up two weeks ago and was in the context of a large, dangerous, unruly crowd that was pressing in on Jesus. Clearly, they were not disciples. Jesus moved away from them and the answer to the question, who is a disciple, are those who come to Jesus in order to be with him. Saw that two weeks ago. They are true disciples. Question popped up again last week in the context of Jesus' family and the religious leaders. 
Both of those groups came to him, but they were not interested in learning from him, not interested in being with him. They were outside where he was, trying to manage him, dismiss him, rather than on the inside with him, listening to him. This week, the, con- the question comes up again in the context of a great big crowd. This time, the crowd is listening. Jesus is out on the water teaching. They're along the shore listening. And Jesus tells them a parable that says, it's not just that you listen, it's how you listen. That it's possible to listen to me in ways that have nothing to do with being a disciple. Now that emphasis on listening brackets this parable. It's how he starts it in verse 3. He says to them, listen. In other words, I have something important to say to you. You need to pay attention to this. You need to think about what I'm saying. Listen. Starts the parable that way, and then he ends the parable, verse 9, by saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, it's possible at the end of this parable to have heard everything, to have ears, but ears that don't hear. Ears that take in words, but an inside that doesn't. An inside that misses the point, an inside that is not aligned with Jesus because it is aligned with something else. Jesus effectively is saying here that if you're aligned with something else, you can make every effort to get out here on the shoreline, sit here for hours in the sun, diligently pay attention, and completely miss him. Completely miss being a disciple. He wants them to know what a disciple is and what a disciple isn't. So he tells them the story about a sower, a farmer. Farmer planting seeds, according to verse 8, it's some kind of grain. Now I want you to think with me, in other words, listen. What's the purpose of planting seeds? Obviously it's that you want something to grow, but what is it that you want to grow? Plants? Well, not really. Plants are nice. But if you want to eat, what you want are plants that produce grain. You're interested in the plant fully maturing because the goal of planting grain seeds is what? It's to get a grain harvest. And so anything less than a plant that produces grain is what? It's pointless. It's a fail. Doesn't matter if the seed never sprouts like soil one or if it sprouts but then dies early like soil two or if like soil three it grows up nice and tall but then never produces anything. As far as the farmer is concerned, all of those first three soils are the same. They've all produced nothing. They're all worthless. There's no payoff. There's no return. The seed that was sown has produced nothing. Now, it's the same sower who's doing the sowing. It's the same seed that's involved. And this is seed that's that's capable of an amazing harvest. Scholars tell us that, who have studied these things, that at that time, an average harvest was somewhere in the range of five-fold to fifteen-fold, ten-fold, ten times back, was, that was a good harvest. So if you're looking at a harvest of 30 times, 60 times, 100 times, you're looking at something that's not natural. <laughs> you're looking at something that is supernatural. Something that tells you there's nothing wrong with the seed. Nothing wrong with the sower, nothing wrong with the seed, and therefore it focuses your attention where? On the soil on what it is that receives the seed. And that's why Jesus says, be careful how you listen. 
because he explains verse 14 the seed that is sown is the word that in that moment he is speaking this is the word that is capable of just producing an incredible harvest this life-giving abundance inside of you but only if it's received otherwise it produces nothing now in this parable jesus does not spend a lot of time talking about what this harvest actually looks like what the fruit of verse 20 actually is he spends most of his time talking about what a non-harvest looks like when he even describes the good soil and how it receives the word he does so in ways that reference back to the other three unproductive soils in that sense most of this parable is about how not to bear fruit or in the words of verse 12 how to see but not perceive how to hear but not understand how to be physically present there with Jesus to see him and hear him and yet be blind and deaf to the reality of what it is that you're seeing and hearing to walk away from the shore that day thinking ah, you know Jesus is kind of a cool storyteller he was interesting to listen to to walk away and not bear fruit in line with what Jesus was trying to say in that sense this is a parable that's a study in unbelief in how you can see the wonder and the glory and the beauty of Jesus displayed right in front of you that you can hear his words that you can see what he does you can see him run himself ragged putting himself out for the sake of others sacrificing himself to make other people's lives better pointing them back to the God who's come to rescue him you can them you can see all of that you can glimpse his heart the heart of God and yet not be interested in him not have anything grow up inside of you not be taken by him not get caught up with him not drink in his words so that they live and they produce this life inside so that in the words of verse 12 so that you actually turn to him and are forgiven you think how is that possible how can you be that close to jesus how can you have made that much effort to be that close to jesus and not be interested how can you sit there on the shoreline or to draw this to a point how can you come to church how can you open your scripture during the week how can you go to CG how can you go to youth group how can you sit and listen but then struggle to believe Jesus to struggle to want him to feel like you have to force yourself to make time to spend with him because you really don't want to how can you sit and listen and feel like there's no real life inside that you're missing out so on something that there's no plant there that's growing abundantly on all on its own and Jesus tells this parable to say if that's how you're feeling there are reasons for that reasons for that lack of interest reasons that unbelief keeps you from being all in with Christ that there's a logic to unbelief a logic that in his grace Jesus says let me unpack for you in this parable why is that because he wants something better for you better for me he wants that life growing up inside of us and so he wants you this morning to overcome unbelief to be that fourth soil which is why he tells you to listen it's why he tells you the parable so that you could be a true disciple and 
so that you can know that you're a true disciple. So if we're going to be disciples, if we're going to be men and women of faith today, we need to understand two things from this parable, just two points today. First, how does unbelief work? Why, when you see and hear Jesus, why would you not want him? How does unbelief work? What gets in the way? And then second, how do you avoid unbelief? How do you not fall into it? How do you avoid it? How does unbelief work? How do we avoid it? So first, how does unbelief work? Jesus says that there are actually three possibilities. That one, Satan can be involved. Verse 15, that he can take away what is sown, the word that Jesus speaks, before it ever has the chance to sprout. You think, well, okay, but how does that happen? If you go back to the Garden of Eden, you are given an excellent example of how that takes place. God gave Adam and Eve his words, that they were not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and Satan challenged those words, snatched them away before they had the chance of sprouting. You know the story, Satan comes to Eve and he asks her, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? He gives her an indirect challenge. What God said was that they could eat from all of the trees except what? Except one. Satan deliberately misquotes God by saying they couldn't eat from any of the trees. And when he does that, what is he suggesting? He's suggesting that God is unreasonable. That he's not providing for them. That he put them here in this garden and he didn't give them anything to eat. That he's not giving them what they need to stay alive. That he's stingy, not generous. Eve, <laughs> you can't eat from any tree? Seriously? It's an indirect challenge to believe that God is a little less good than he really is. From there, Satan moves on to a more direct challenge. Eve tells him, no, we, we can eat from all of them but this one. But this one, if we eat from it, we will die. And here's the direct challenge. Satan says, you will not surely die. He just called God a liar. And then he gives a reason for why God would lie. He says, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. He tells her, God's holding out on you. Right here, right now, within your reach, is something that's going to make you wise beyond your imagining. You will have a great life if only God would let you. You would be like God, but I guess he doesn't want that, so he's told you to stay away from it. That's how Satan takes away the word that is sown. People hear what God says, but then Satan suggests that a God who would say something like that that kind of God is unreasonable. He's unreasonable to tell you what to do or not to do, especially if you don't see any harm in doing it. Or he suggests that God does not have your best interests in mind. You know, he's just fickle. He's arbitrary. That the way that he does things and the way that things that he tells you to do, that, that they just don't make any sense. It's certainly not the way that you would do them. You ever have those kind of doubts rise up in your own mind? Thoughts that would judge God based on your own perception of goodness? Maybe some of you had that today when Pastor Luke read verse 11, 
where Jesus says that some people have been given the secret of the kingdom of God and some haven't. That there are outsiders who are listening in, outsiders who are making time to come to hear Jesus, outsiders who are listening, but they only get parables. Parables that really don't make any sense to them. When you hear that, do you like that, Jesus? Do you feel immediately warm toward him? Or do you have doubts start to rise up in your mind? Doubts about how reasonable he is to do it this way. Doubts about his goodness, about his fairness. Do you find yourself judging him from your own perspective of how you would go about doing things? That you would not say something like that to other people. That you would be as plain and as clear as possible. That you would do things differently than Jesus did. Which is another way of saying what? That you would do things better than Jesus would. That your own sense of goodness is actually higher than his. If you felt that this morning, that's part of how unbelief works. Satan suggests that God is not good. That what he does, what he says, is tainted by evil in some way. That he has an agenda that's going to benefit himself, but he's going to benefit himself at your expense. And Satan will suggest, you can't really trust a God like that. Or you don't want a God like that. And if those doubts stick in your mind, what happens? The word that was sown is gone plucked up before it ever had a chance to grow. That's one way that unbelief happens. One way that we have all experienced doubting God's goodness. Second way comes from the pressure of living in this world. This is a lot easier to see. That verse 16, when you first hear the word, you immediately receive it with joy. That it's wonderful that Jesus would bring the kingdom of God to this messed up world in general. It's really wonderful that he would bring it to you in particular. You receive it with joy, but then you start to realize the kingdom of God is so different from this world that to enter into it means that you're no longer going to fit easily in this world. That holding on to the word of this kingdom, the seed that is sown, that's going to create friction between you and your society. And that friction will happen regardless of your social location. Because no human institution, no human society maps 100% onto the kingdom of God. There's always a place where they don't. Let me give you two examples. They come in opposite directions, so hang on if the first one offends you. A friend told me this past week of someone who posted her testimony online of having come to follow Jesus about five years ago. And in posting this, she also went on to uh, talk about how her sexual ethic had developed, how it had changed, and it was no longer what it was previously. That it does not mean that you need to have the right sexual ethic to come to Jesus. It means that after she came to him and she was continuing to hear the word, she changed the way that she was approaching the world. Within five days of posting what she did, she was slammed with over 4,300 comments. You think about that. You open up your social media feed and there's only a thousand new comments today for you to consider. Overwhelming. Most of them were negative. Even harassing. Said things like she wasn't being true to herself, that she was brainwashed, that she was in a cult. This 
lady dared to hold on to God's word. His right to tell you not only what you can do, but also what you can think. What you should think. What you should feel. What you can do with your body. What you can use it for. She dared to hold on to things that are associated with a more traditional society. And she was persecuted by the world that she lives in for holding on to God's word. Or let's run it in the opposite direction. I think of a friend of mine, different friend. He posted to his social media account a simple list of Bible verses. That's it. No commentary. Just Bible verses with references about God's concern for justice. And he told me that he has never gotten so many comments and responses, most of which were negative, accusing him of being politically motivated and on the wrong side of the political divide simply because he's quoting Scripture. He dared to hold on to God's word, God's right to tell you that as a human being, as a member of the human race, you have corporate responsibility. You have moral responsibility, not just for yourself, for your own personal morality, but you have responsibility for the rest of the community, for others. That you are your brother's keeper. That you cannot spend your money or your time or your resources any way that you want but that you have an obligation to those who have been given less than you have, or that you must defend those who are in a weaker position than you have been blessed with, or you must care about justice and righteousness, not just for yourself, but for the sake of the community. Things that we normally associate with a more progressive viewpoint, things that will get you in trouble if you post in this society. Do you see what Jesus is getting at in his parable? It does not matter where you start. It does not matter in whatever society you feel most comfortable with, in this case traditional or progressive. They're both the same from this perspective. To receive the word of, from Christ will challenge your society regardless of what it is. He will have something to say that they will not agree with. And it will challenge them in such a way that they will respond so strongly that you will experience, verse 17, tribulation or persecution on account of the word you can count on it. There is a very real cost to you to hang on to Jesus' words. And so when that persecution comes, people don't. They don't cling to the word, the word of the kingdom, because they don't want to pay the cost. So Satan and the pressures of this world will give you reasons not to believe, but there are also internal pressures, pressures that come from within you. Verse 19, the cares of the world, the cares of having enough, of providing for your family, of getting ahead, of your kids succeeding. Those cares can take priority over what Jesus tells you about the kingdom. Cares of the world will do that, so will the deceitfulness of riches, the belief that money will save you, that money will insulate you from all harm, that it will allow you to do lots of things, and that only after having done those things will you then have a full, meaningful life. That belief will also choke out what Jesus tells you. Cares of this world, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things. That feeling of being dissatisfied with what you have. You look around and you see things that you want. You're eaten up by envy and covetousness, and you think to yourself, if only I had those things, if only I went to those places, did those things, ate that kind of food, 
then life would be better than it is now. These three things, the cares of this world, deceitfulness of wealth, and desires for other things, they all come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful, just like persecution does, just like Satan's activity does. In other words, Jesus is saying that unbelief, a rejection of him and his kingdom, a failure to see it root and flourish in your life, he's saying unbelief doesn't just happen. It doesn't just appear out of thin air. Instead, it has a source. That when you don't hold tightly to what Jesus says, when he himself is not attractive to you, it's because something else is more attractive. It's because there are reasons that you don't believe. It's not that you, it's not just that you don't believe, but that you don't believe because your unbelief does something for you, gets you something that you want, or it protects you from something that you don't want. And so you don't believe in Jesus because you do believe in something else. And so, in that first soil, you don't even let his word sprout in you because you believe that the way you would do things is better than the way that God does them. Now, you have no proof that that's true, that your way is better, but you believe it anyway. Why? Because it gets you what you want, and then his word doesn't sprout in you. Or soil, too. You believe that persecution on this earth is the worst thing that could happen to you. That there is nothing worse than being shamed and shamed publicly. Again, you have no reason to believe that persecution is worse than falling away from Christ. You can't look that far into the future to know that. You have no reason to believe persecution is worse, but you believe it anyway. And so you don't hold on to Christ. Or soil three, you believe that what this world offers you is far, far better than anything that God could offer you. That this world really will be deep down soul-fulfilling. Again, there's no proof that that's the case. There's actually a lot of evidence that this world does not fully satisfy. That it keeps you running on a treadmill that just never stops. And yet you believe that if you run just a little bit longer, that it'll finally pay off. And so you let go of Jesus' words because you're holding on to other ones. Words that you actually believe are going to give you a better life. You want something else to be more true than what Jesus says. You can't prove that it's more true, but you want it to be. You have this faith that it is simply because it's going to give you what you want out of life. And in that sense, unbelief takes just as much faith as belief does. It's a faith in yourself, and it's a faith in what you want. It's a faith in your own perception of the world. It takes just as much faith, but if you grab onto that faith, it will blind you to God, and it'll blind you to his kingdom. You won't be able to see him as he really is. You'll be on the outside. And the really scary part of this parable is that you might not even know that. That's point one. That's how unbelief works. Point two, how do you avoid that? How do you avoid unbelief? It's very simple. You go to Jesus. You realize that he is not offering you a religion, but a relationship. He's not offering you a system of doctrine. He's offering you a savior. Not a list of practices to do, but a person to know. 
Jesus did not come saying, I will tell you how to get to God. I will tell you the way to get to God. He came saying, I am the way to get to God. And so verse 10, when he was alone, after the crowds had gone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. They have to make sure you get what's going on here. Jesus, in verse 11, is about to call the crowd those who are outside, those who see but don't perceive, those who hear but don't understand. He's about to say, they didn't get it. They didn't understand my parable. But frankly, neither did the disciples. That's why they're asking. There is no difference between their comprehension of what Jesus just said or the crowd's. At this point, both of them are clueless. And yet Jesus says, verse 11, to you, disciples, has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. And so you understand here that the difference is not what? It's not mental acuity. Both have no idea what Jesus is talking about. So what is the difference? What's the difference between the groups? It's only this. One group came to Jesus with their questions, the other went away and left him. The difference is not in their comprehension. The difference is what they do with their lack of comprehension. It's in who they turn to when they're confused. And because this group comes to Jesus, they get the secret of the kingdom of God. This thing about the kingdom that is veiled, the secret, the thing that's hidden. They get verse 14, that the sower sows is the word that the word that Jesus himself is sowing is the word as he speaks to them in that moment, that he is doing right now what he's been doing from the beginning of his ministry, proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand, that he is the one bringing it, that the sower, the one speaking, is also the king who brought the kingdom. He doesn't look like much. It's not rich, not powerful, not raised in an upscale neighborhood with lots of rich, powerful friends and connections. Instead, he's come really small, like a seed, unassuming, not forcing people into his kingdom, but making himself available to anyone who wants him. The sower throws a lot, lot of seed out there. He's available to anyone who comes to him with their questions because they have faith. Faith what? Faith that he'll answer them. Faith that he'll take their questions seriously. Faith that he'll love them. Faith that he'll welcome them. And that tells you something really important about disciples. Disciples are not disciples, Christ followers, because they're richer than anyone else, or smarter than anyone else, or better connected, or more privileged. It's because they want Jesus, and that's it. That's the sole criteria. They want Jesus more than they want God to be a certain way. They want Jesus more than they want to avoid persecution. They want Jesus more than they want anything else out of life. And you see that desire come out when they're confused about something that God has said. When they're tempted to doubt or to run away, tempted to long for something else, they come to Jesus instead. Do you see now how the parable works? It doesn't push people in one direction or another. 
doesn't make someone love or hate Jesus. In that sense, it's not producing hardness. What is it doing? It's revealing where someone's heart is. It's exposing whether a heart is hard or not. In other words, this is not rocket science to be a Christ follower. It's relational. It's faith that in coming to Jesus, he will have answers for your questions and that he will actually want to talk with you and give you those answers. I talked to several people this past week who just really drove this point home for me. And it drove it home because I watched them do it. I'm not going to name names, not going to embarrass anybody. I do want to tell you about these three, none of whom are from my family. One of our middle, renewal middle schoolers had a question after last week's sermon. Instead of just letting it go or walking away or saying, I don't want a God like that, he came and asked. Asked his father. The three of us then got together and talked talk about how God answers his question in Scripture. Or I think about a different conversation that I had later in the week with one of our college students. Did exactly the same thing. person who's been wrestling with hard questions that go to the heart and the character of God's nature. Heart and character of his goodness. Instead of walking away because they don't want that kind of God, what are they doing? They're wrestling with him. Wanting to understand his heart. And how could they can love a God who does and says what our God does and says? Or I think about another college student learning to turn to God more in the middle of personal struggles. To relate to him in the moment and to find a connection with him that is more real than a connection with thoughts, connection with ideas, connection with philosophy, connection with theology. Experiencing a connection with a person. What are each of these people doing? They're doing what disciples do. They've heard Jesus and they want more. The parable, the hard things that Jesus doesn't say, raise questions for them and they're honest questions, questions that should be wrestled with. But they're questions that only make them want Jesus more. They want a real God who has his own personality even if he disagrees with them. They want to hold on to his words, even if there's a price to pay for doing so. And they want what he offers more than they want the ease and the comfort that this world offers. And what each of the three are finding is that the more they want of him, the more he gives himself to them. That's what a disciple is. Someone who gets that the secret of the kingdom is Jesus. That he is the king and that he's talking with them. And because he's offering them a relationship, they know that they can have more of him, and so they come looking for more. You can't see this in your English translation, but the Greek text has different verb tenses there for the word hear, different tenses for how the different kinds of people hear. The tense for the first three, the first three soils, first three kinds of people who don't produce fruit, it's a once and done kind of tense. They hear, but it's a one-time event. It doesn't stay with them. Fourth kind of person has a present tense verb, one that's ongoing. They hear, and they keep hearing. That's point two, how you avoid unbelief. You don't hear and walk away. 
but you hear and you stay. And you come closer to Christ so that you can hear more. You hear and you hear and you hear and you keep on hearing because you want him even when you don't fully understand him. Which all sounds wonderful until you realize how fickle your own heart is. How half-hearted the best of us are. How hard it is to keep our passion fixed on Christ. To keep wanting him in the face of the temptation from Satan. Temptation from this world. Temptation from within ourselves. How do we have any hope that we can value him above all other things? That we will want to keep hearing from him? How do we have any hope that we can escape from unbelief? Our hope is the same hope that the disciples needed who were there that day on the shore. Because every single one of them that gathered around him that day and came and asked him questions, every single one of them would later all fall away. Satan desired to sift them. They were afraid of suffering like Jesus would suffer. They wanted something else out of life, something better, fame, wealth, power, not suffering and death. And so when Jesus was arrested, they all deserted him. And he knew that they would. He even told them that they would. That they would all fall away on account of him. He was not surprised that they couldn't keep close to him. And he wasn't angry. He wasn't angry with them. He promised instead that he would restore them. That he would meet them again after he rose from the dead. That what he was about to do in his suffering and death would be enough to restore them. That their small weak interest in him there along by the lake that didn't last that that interest would grow grow into something that would take them all the way into eternity where they would be with him forever that's your hope that's my hope today too not that we can somehow make our own hearts want him but that he will do that work in us that the seed that he plants really does grow because he causes it to grow. And because he causes it to grow, it really does produce this amazingly abundant harvest, one that we don't deserve, but one that we enjoy anyway. This is your God. This is his heart. This is a heart that wants you, a heart that wants to steer you away from unbelief back to himself. So the next time you find yourself listening to Satan, doubting God's goodness, look at Jesus standing there on the shore, not shouting God's warning down from heaven, not coming with the hosts of heaven to dazzle and terrify you, not to crush human rebellion, standing there veiled. Small, like a seed in a human body, just this easily overlooked carpenter. Simple human being without even human power or glory doing what? Telling stories <laughs> along the side of a lake. Stories that reach out and grab you, that hook you and draw you into himself. Jesus wrote himself into the story of the human race when he didn't have to, to give a warning that he did not need to people whose hearts could not hold on to him without his help. Look at him and you'll realize that you can trust him when you don't understand him.
or when you're afraid that you're going to suffer if you hold on to what he says. Remember, he's already suffered for you. His whole life from birth to death was one long journey to the cross because it was there that he was going to save and rescue his people. He would suffer at the hands of the religious leaders. He would be mocked by them, beaten, killed, not for his own sake, but to pay what his people owed because their hearts could not cling tight enough to the God who made them. To pay not what he owed, but what each of us owed. Because he wanted you that badly. Look at him as he's persecuted for you. When he didn't have to be, and you will be able to accept whatever suffering comes your way because you're related to someone who wants you that badly. Who wants you more than he wanted a pain-free life. Or when you're enamored of other things, look again at Jesus. He gave them all up. Riches, wealth, experiences, getting ahead in life. He refused to be distracted by any of that because he had a single fixation. What he wanted more than anything of else, more than any of those things, was what? It was you. And he would not allow those things to get in the way of what he came to do. Look at him when you're tempted to value something more than him, and you'll discover there isn't anything more valuable than he is. We're about to celebrate him in communion right now, which we will share together. This fact that Jesus refused all temptations to turn away from what he had to do in order to put life inside of you. So I want to invite you to take a few moments now to talk with him. Get your heart ready to meet with him. Ask him to forgive you for whatever has gotten in the way of you seeing how valuable he is. If you've not asked before, ask him to plant that seed inside of you, that life that only he can. And if you have asked for that, ask that he would cause it to grow more. So that you would start to realize even more today, there isn't anything that you could want more than he. Let's take a few moments to pray together. Mm -hmm.